Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 651 with my guest Christine Lane. Uh, we're going to talk about the psychology of money, spending, saving, a lot of uh, a lot of other stuff. Um, and it is a coincidence uh, that uh, I've been sharing the last two weeks about a financial crisis I've been having with the podcast and asking for um, financial support. I recorded this episode episode with. Uh, Chris, uh, maybe three months ago, something like that, before the uh, the bottom dropped out um, here on the podcast. Thank you, those of you who have uh, stepped up on Patreon. And I got a really nice email from a listener. His name's Bill, and he's been a, a supporter for a while. And and he said, stop apologizing about asking for money. He said, you're, you're giving value for value. And... Um, and I would I would agree, and I don't know why it's so hard for me uh, to to say that. But the analogy I kind of thought of that I would share with you guys is: if you stopped on the street every week and listened to me entertain you for an hour, would you put anything in <laughs> in my empty guitar case, or would you just listen and leave. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense, but um, we really need financial help. Uh, our, a major sponsor of ours and, and I have parted ways and it was a difficult decision for me to do that, but in my heart I knew it was the right thing to do, um, even though it, it leaves me um, way, way, way below um, the money I need for to keep this podcast running. And I just have faith that the universe uh, will find a way uh, for me to be able to make my mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and boy, is this uncomfortable for me to, to say these things. But uh, I got to I got to practice what I what I preach on this podcast, which is when you need help, ask for it. And uh, so, I am asking for help. You can sign up via Patreon. Um, there's links on our website, metalpod.com. You can do it through PayPal, but you don't get any kind of tier, different tiers of rewards, or you know, access to bonus content, or. Uh, the new thing that we added, and we're going to uh, put a couple of them in the episode today, which is a Patreon subscribers uh, sending any kind of audio uh, that they want for consideration in uh, putting into the podcast, whether it's them reading a survey or making a comment. We've got two of them today uh, that, I'm, that I'm very grateful for. So those are the kinds of things um, if you subscribe on Patreon you can be eligible for and you can subscribe on patreon for anywhere from a dollar a month to um i think our biggest uh subscriber donor whatever you want to call it is uh, 200 dollars a month and i'm i'm so 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 grateful um for that uh and speaking of our website we finally have our email up and running i shared last uh week that Unbeknownst to me, our email, our contact form, had been not working for the last nine months. So anybody 
who e- emailed me anything through the website in the last nine months. I did not get it. There's no way to retrieve it, so please email me again, and I apologize for any uh, inconvenience. I hope you had a good fourth. I Oh, and, and one more thing before I talk about that. Uh, Christine and I mentioned Graham Elwood's episode with us because he talked about um, money, uh, the psychology of money, trauma, etc., etc., and we referenced Graham's interview, and that would be episode number 611 from, I don't know, maybe nine months ago, something like that. Um, I hope you had a good fourth. Gracie, my dog, is so fucking fun. There are so many things about her that just make me smile, make me laugh. Um, I've, I've shared how when I get ready to take her for a walk, she will find a shoe or a slipper and celebrate by throwing it into the air. Uh, I don't know what it, it is with her and feet, but whenever I sit on my bed and put socks on, she <laughs> goes onto her back on the bed and does a couple of snorts and poses uh, like, let's go. This you're putting socks on. It's time to pet my tummy. Uh, and the one that she does on the fourth is not only is she not scared by fireworks, she's outraged by them. A firework will go off, and it's like if she had a plate of Fourth of July food, she would slam it down and start looking around with her arms up in the air, like who the fuck is ruining my Fourth of July. She goes to the window. She barks. I'm so glad that she's not scared. I know a lot of people have pets that get terrified. I've had pets that get terrified. And sadly, a lot of pets uh, run away, climb fences in the yard to to get away. So hopefully that didn't happen to any of you. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Shy Guy, uh, who identifies as non-binary. And uh, what would you like to ask Paul? What are some of the resources to find support groups in your area? I'm having a hard time finding any. Uh, Parentheses. I know you've probably already said this on the pod. Forgive me. Uh, There is no really one best way uh, other than, I think, Googling something, uh, a keyword for what you're looking for. If you're looking for one around codependence, um, I know there are good online ones in the rooms, uh, .com or .org. I always forget which one it is. I know NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, uh, has a website, especially for loved ones. Uh, and feel free always to, to email me. And one of the questions I will ask you is what are the issues that you're struggling with? Cause I'm a big fan of 12 step, uh, support groups. And there is pretty much, you name any issue, there is a 12 step support group for that. Uh, there are also a lot of support groups led by, uh, certified therapists, social workers, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know how to put you in contact with them because those are usually you you need to know the the therapist who is is running that so um i hope that answers your question this is from the struggle in a sentence survey and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself patrick and i wonder if this is the patrick that uh we have a uh, audio from today 
might be, about his ADD. My brain is a, <laughs> is a crowded parakeet cage that fell off a moving truck. God damn it, do I love that one. About his anxiety, the way a stray dog looks stressed. About his alcoholism and drug addiction. Why did they teach us about drugs in school, but they didn't teach you about feelings? I want to make a poster of that and walk up and down the street. It is so, so true about compulsive eating. At what point should I just get rid of my fridge? About being a sex crime victim. I've told the family that grandpa had Parkinson's, so it didn't really count. Oh, man. Thank you for those, Patrick. In fact, uh, here's here's Patrick's. Uh, I assume this is the same Patrick. Uh, the audio he sent about his struggle with uh, misophonia, a.k.a. sound sensitivity. It's Patrick here in Redmond, Oregon. Um, I'm male, uh, too close to 40. And then um, what noises bother you? Um, mostly any uh, unnecessary noise, which is most human noises. That's why I live out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of wonderful. I still hear noises. Is your relationship with the person making the noise affecting your relationship? Yeah, it's my fucking neighbors. They they have an excavation business out of their backyard. And they're not supposed to, but I say live and let live. But some days I go on mental murderous sprees with them. And recently they just started a woodcutting business as well. Do I have any other sensory things? No, mainly just touch. I don't like being touched, <laughs> um, unexpectedly or unwantingly, but that's, you know, who doesn't? Some people love being touched. Got a few friends that way. They're fucking psychos. How long have I had this hearing sensitivity? Um, I remember when I was four, I got in trouble and they put me in my room and I was sitting in my room and that's when I heard the ringing in my ears. So I became hyper-focused on that and my ringing in my ears is pretty much my friend if it went away i don't know why i'd freak out but um yeah i think that uh, i i enjoyed being in quiet places where i could hear that ringing and the place you get silence is in nature go find yourself some nature i think my favorite thing about nature is uh i guess unless you're in jail or prison you it can't be taken away from you that's that's something i think i know i forget a lot is one of the greatest things in life is always there and it's always free. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey uh, filled out by Swamp Witch. And uh, they ask, have you ever been interviewed and then afterwards realized that the core of what you meant went unsaid? This happened to me a couple of months ago when I allowed myself to be interviewed for an art project. I decided to talk about my experience with Stevens-Johnson syndrome and how it changed me. Even though I've done a lot of public speaking in years past, unfortunately, due to the weirdness of being recorded, the PTS I deal with and my total lack of prep or notes, I became kind of dysregulated. And the things I really wanted to say went unsaid. I hate that. For instance, I have a tracheotomy scar on my neck. I've never for one second looked at that scar and thought, what an ugly thing. That scar is the mark of a surgeon's life-saving skill. 
Even when it was a raw wound, this mark has never been something that hurts me to see. I love it very much. I would never have it removed or reduced. I never cover it up. I wear it almost like a tattoo, a piece of art made from my fight for survival. I believe that if I had more scars or disfigurements on my face or body, I would have come to love them similarly. I don't know. It's just kind of sad to me that I didn't say these things. Has this happened to you? Where your favorite material got left out and you were pretty sure you misrepresented yourself? Uh, what a great question. And yes, and yes. Almost every time I share in a support group or I do an episode of this podcast, I play Monday morning quarterback and go, oh, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? And it's something that I have learned to be uh, compassionate with myself about. But uh, just last week, I was super, super fired up at my support group. There was a couple of new guys there. I could see the light coming on in their eyes. I talked to them before the meeting, and I could just feel my spirit lift and and my like adrenaline in a good way uh all my problems just faded away and i felt so connected to the universe and i shared that um and i was very effusive and afterwards i was like oh that 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 wasn't real that was a performance that was me trying to get love or this or that and one of my friends in the support group when i shared this with him was like buddy Stop being so hard on yourself. You were adrenalized. You were excited. You were feeling it. It was great. End of story. So I would say, I would say that to you. This is from the love survey filled out by Aubergine Peach. I think I'm pronouncing Aubergine, right? And they write, I love being underwater because it's so peaceful and shuts out all the chatter in my brain. And seeing the fishes makes me smile because they all have different funny faces. Such a good one. Oh, I love that quiet. I think followed only by the quiet after you leave a party. (laughs) That is like the sweetest silence in the world. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by L. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm screwed. My new job is going to be a bomb, is the current voice in rotation, along with my anxiety disorder telling me I am a clusterfuck. Thank you for that. Well, let's look at the positives of being a clusterfuck. You're handling many fucks at once, and not a lot of people can do that. The convergence of of fucks... uh, can be overwhelming, but I say celebrate it. Think of it as a gangbang of uh, shit sandwiches. Does that help? This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey filled out by um, a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as SOAP. Why were you hospitalized? Suicide attempts and self-harm bullshit. Describe your experience. It did help. It helped to know I wasn't alone in my pain. There was something so healing about the community. I was in a residential program for a little over a month and had an affair with a woman while I was there. The nurses didn't seem to care as we snuck around, even though in retrospect it was completely inappropriate. She was 30 and I was 19 and completely naive. I was desperate to be seen. 
She had a love and sex addiction and was bipolar, and she chose me. I felt so special that she chose me, and it felt like a magical connection, but was merely a distraction from the pain we both felt. I didn't know she had a partner and was entirely crushed when I found out. I was paranoid that the nurses would punish me, so I begged to leave and told them I was all better. For a long time, I romanticized this relationship until I realized how it distracted me from my healing and probably hers as well. Since then, I've been in and out of the psych ward about six times for attempting to take my own life. Two summers ago, I overdosed and almost died, but since I've been stable, but since I've been stable and I'm still on my path to healing, I hope she found her healing too. Thank you for for sharing that and wow man um I I'm I'm glad that you are moving forward cuz that is some some heavy shit and you know distracting ourselves you know by falling in love or becoming obsessed or trauma bonding or whatever when when we don't want to face that pain is such a natural natural thing um because it's like this good feels good adrenaline it's oblivion it's a form of oblivion and i totally i totally get that thank you for for sharing that and then finally this is an awful moment filled out by borderline a woman who calls herself borderline schmorderline and she writes picture an idyllic village by the seaside in the netherlands My boyfriend and I had just arrived after a long drive, and we were breathing in the first evening of our vacation. I was pulling out my phone to take pictures, as one does, when I saw a notification that someone had sent me what appeared like an extremely graphic and somewhat vintage-looking pinup. At first glance, I thought it was maybe a centerfold from a 1980s magazine. It was a happy, smiling woman in her 60s in sexy lingerie, basically with her tits out and her enormous bush exposed. At a second glance, I realized with shock and confusion that the message came from my dad. I opened the message and to find erotic pose, prose attached, starting with you riding me underneath the tree, your breasts like ripe grapes. At this point, I was frozen with horror. I slowly began to realize that the woman in the photo was my dad's ex-girlfriend from maybe four or five years ago, not his current girlfriend. As I was trying to wrap my head around this information and the things I had seen that could never be unseen, my dad sent me a second message. Hope the last message didn't confuse you. She still insists on keeping in touch. My consciousness might be disintegrating heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress i was like five years old was pulp fiction (laughs) and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell or my barbies The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) 
I'm here with Chris Lane, uh, who's you've been a listener for a been while. Been a listener since 2011. I found you pretty early on. Oh my God, that was the first year. In fact, it yet, was the first year. Yesterday was our 12th uh, anniversary. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I actually found it was the Paul F. Tompkins episode that drew me in, okay. which I know was voted listener favorite, and I knew him through a mutual friend. And I saw that I'm like, this is really interesting. Yeah, he and was I was a, hooked. He was a great guest. Well, yeah. uh, thank you. Thank you for your uh, continued <laughs> support. And you contacted me after the the Graham Elwood uh, return episode yep. where he came back for the second time. And we talked about the relationship between the brain and money. Yes, absolutely. And this is this is my wheelhouse. This is my favorite thing. I am an accredited financial counselor. And I focus on the behavioral aspects of personal finance. And I was listening to Graham's episode and I thought, wow, his journey is the story that my clients have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the help he got through his support groups, which, by the way, I'd love to – at some point I want to ask him who they were because they're giving him great advice. It's, it's exactly yeah. what I tell my clients. Um, you know, That's what I do with my clients and those are some of the kinds of stories they have. And I know that you sometimes had professionals on. And like I said, I'm a long-term listener and a big fan. I thought, gosh, I wonder if he'd have me on. And I wrote you and you said yes. And so here we are. It's such an important topic and and one that fucks with so many people's lives. And uh, they don't know where to begin to, to get their money in order. Exactly. So what led you to become interested in this topic? Well, that's that's a, an interesting story. Um, as I said, I've been a long-term listener, and I know one of your first questions is often, give me some snapshots of your life. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, man, my snapshots of my life on this topic are going to make for a terrible episode of Mental Illness Happy Hour. Why? Um, first, first ideas around money is getting raised Catholic, uh, first Holy Communion money, and my dad took me to the bank to set up a savings account, and I got a little passbook, and it had a line for interest, and he told me about interest, and I thought that was so cool, and they gave me all an allowance and had me budget from it, and I got good at budgeting, and when I was 12, uh, one of my aunts and uncles, who I think was tired of giving gifts to all of their nieces and nephews every year, got us a very small amount of uh, stock in a mutual fund, and ex- I was 12, and they explained dividends, and I thought, I own a piece of McDonald's. This is so fun. So I got a very natural and organic um, lesson on money growing up. My parents had a good relationship with it. But stable, functional households do not make great episodes of Mental Illness Happy Hour. And my story about how I came to help other people with this starts in the dark place, right? Like it starts with some of the things that brought me to Mental Illness Happy Hour, which were uh, some really significant bouts of anxiety, like crippling anxiety um, in 2011 and in 2014. Triggered by anything? or In hindsight, we now know uh, I have some executive functioning issues, not quite ADHD, but close. We now know that it was triggered by some of the meds I was on for that. Um, but it had to attach to something, right? It had to have a fear to go to. And in 2014, my job was, my job, I used to be in a different career field. I used to be contracting, helping develop online training. And my job, which had always been pretty intense, you know, had some pretty long hours, would come and go, became absolutely untenable. Um, We had an international client. There were conference calls at 4.30 in the morning with London and midnight with Hong Kong and every hour in between. And the work could not get done, but 
people's jobs were depending on me. Oh, my God. That's given me a nervous breakdown. We were looking at layoffs before we got this this contract, so we couldn't mess it up. And it was just – it was untenable. And uh, my hair was falling out. Apparently, people knew I was wrong and something was wrong but didn't know what. Thought it might be cancer. Apparently, that's what I look like. Um, My husband was considering – uh, committing me to a mental hospital. And I've heard enough of the surveys that you've done on involuntary commitments. When he told me that after it resolved, I said, oh, please do not ever do that. I wasn't going to hurt myself. Um, but what he kept saying to me was, please, please quit your job. Please quit your job. I am begging you to quit your job. And what was keeping you from quitting your job? Fear that I would run out of money because anxiety is not rational. I We had saved enough. I, you know, if you start out good with money from a very long age, by the time you're in your late 40s, you can take three months of unemployment without starving. And absolutely the numbers were there, but the anxiety wouldn't let me do it. Um, I couldn't quit. I couldn't stay. I couldn't work. Uh, I wasn't even doing a good job at my job, which I had been very good at and so felt pretty terrible about that. And I had always been the rock for the people under stress. And one of my favorite employees said to me, you can't be anxious. You're my rock. And I'm like, I know, but I'm not right now. (laughs) I'm sand right now. Um, And after it went on long enough and bad enough, I decided they were right. I had to quit. The anxiety over staying had become worse than the anxiety over quitting. And I made an appointment with my boss, who had been my boss and my mentor for a very long time. And things had gotten weird because we were a small company the very supportive environment. We got bought by a larger company, and now there's pressure coming from above. But I made an appointment with my boss for 3 o'clock on a Monday, and she made another appointment with me an hour earlier to do something else. And I got there, and I said, well, this is awkward, because my appointment with you at 3 is to quit. And she said, I know. That's why we're here. I'm going to talk you out of it. I said, you're not. I'm done. Um, And I knew she would offer me time off, which she did. They said, two-week vacation won't fix anything. She said, I'll give you the summer off. I said, what? How? How would that even work? She's because now we have a big HR department. And she said, we'll do it under FMLA. And like a lot of people with some level of mental illness, I said, no, 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 I'm not really sick. What's FMLA? Uh, Family medical leave. So if you've got, uh, if you need to leave a job where you've got the insurance and you've got the full-time benefits to be able to keep your insurance, but not work for three months, Um, family, I forget what it's actually called, but it's. It's a law that if the company's over a certain size, if you get like a doctor's note, they have to give you this gotcha. so that you won't lose your insurance because you need time off. But of course I said, but I'm not really sick. <laughs> this isn't physical. This doesn't count as illness. I'll sweep my hair up after I'm done. Yes, exactly. And I think that might have been when she told me people think you have cancer. People know something's wrong, and that's what they think it is. We can do this. Um, And so we did. And I had a couple days where I had to transfer my work, my clients. And I sat down with my boss, who was a really good person, also pushed people really hard. You had to know when to push back. And I looked at her, and I said, look, this isn't just me. Everybody's in this situation. I mean, maybe not as bad as me. But they're all on the calls at 4.30 and midnight. And one of my employees is telling me that she can't stay up 24 hours in a row more than one night a week. And so is it okay if she doesn't do two? Wow. I'm not making that up. Um, She was young. I was like, uh, when you get out of your 20s, like, you need to stop now. You're not going to be able to keep doing this. Like, please stop. I I am not asking this of you. Um, My boss looked at me. My, My boss at this point had sold her small company and had plenty of money. 
She said, there are two people in this business unit that can afford to quit their jobs without having another one lined up. One is me and the other is you. The rest just have to deal. And I was like, oh my God. Whoa. There seems to be a disconnect for me between you saying that she was this great person mm-hmm. and she was the a dichotomous she person. She anybody who's ever met her I, without getting she's a long story without getting to her they love her or they hate her or both. She's an amazing outlier person who could be incredibly compassionate, who could do amazing things for her staff, but she also pushed people really hard and put herself first. She was a dichotomous person. Both things. I, I actually asked one of my colleagues, because my boss wanted me to stick on like one or two days a week, and I asked one of my colleagues, she, my boss was telling me, it'll be better for you to have some routine. I asked a colleague who'd known the boss as long as I have. I said, you know her. Um, do you think she's trying to help me or manipulate me? And my colleague said, you know her. It's both. She's a very long story. Yeah. And and sounds like a great example of uh, how complicated people can be. So it sounds like she was a compassionate person as long as it didn't have to do with the business. As long as it didn't impact the bottom line overly much. Um, yeah. Ooh, I have it's such tough. a I, – I, it is such a global sickness, especially in Western. Yes. I suppose probably in, yeah. in the East as well, yeah. but it, it, the ripples, the ripples of Absolutely. that mentality are. And I would not have been doing it for her. I was doing it for the people who needed their jobs, right? Like I knew yeah. that's where we were. Um, and to be fair, when there was money to spare, she used it to float people and not lay people off. She was no longer completely in control because of the, you know, corporate overlords, right. um, She's a mix, and she's she's a very long story. But the um, the power that hit me of that was she only gave me those three months off because she knew I wasn't bluffing. She knew I could walk away. Right. The power to walk away was essential to my mental health because those three months were amazingly healing. And there are so many people that don't have the power Most to walk away. Most people don't have the power. And I certainly didn't have it at many earlier stages of my life. And that, for me, was the seed that went, Everybody needs some amount of this in their life, and most people don't know how to get it. They, they were not given a bank book at, at eight years old. They were not given allowance and taught how to budget it. They weren't handed a book on how to manage your money when they graduated college. And, and to be fair, it wasn't just the education. You know, I, I don't know that I would say we have generational wealth, but we have generational financial stability, and that's a leg up that, you know, is, is huge and not everybody has. Yeah. People start from different places than I started. Yeah, so some some people might be as responsible as they can, but they're working minimum wage yes. jobs, and they can't keep their head above exactly. water, or they're barely surviving. That is absolutely true, and there are a lot of people in this country who no amount of perfect money management or financial education is going to save them from the world of financial stress. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't know or don't have the emotional wherewithal to do what could give them a lot of stability. There are a lot of people who the income is there, but the fear and the shame around money are very intense because they either don't know how to manage it or because it is so emotional. And because as Graham was talking about, money is a place for trauma to hide. Money is a place you spend money to escape, to to avoid feeling bad. Um, It's one of the many there's reasons there's a support group for people that spend it it can 
go along the same lines as drinking or overeating or anything like that. And so my goal became, and it, it, it evolved a little more, but my goal became reach people for whom it's either the behavioral or the educational aspects are what's lacking because I can fix that. Right. I can't fix the inequality of America. Right. I got no power there. Right. Uh, so obviously you were inspired to to switch career and begin yes. to uh, to counsel people. Exactly. Uh, so let's let's talk about some uh, of obviously you have to protect their yes. anonymity, but give me some cases that you yeah. think exemplify uh, where people can Im- improve their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with the one person who I can name because she is my uh, biggest supporter. She was Bonnie. She was, um, I call her client zero. She was actually one of our employees. And the way I started, the way it went from, I want to help to, oh, here's how I can help was uh, we were sitting around talking about our company's 401k plan, as you do. And she was saying that she wasn't putting enough away to get the company matched. If you put 6% of your income away, the company would match 3% of it. And I said to her, forgetting how I came to be where I was, I said, oh, come on, Bonnie, you got to put away enough to get the match. Everybody knows that, of course, because everybody got started teaching with this when they were eight, which (laughs) they didn't. Um, And she said, oh, I have student loans. If I put 6% away, I would not be able to eat. And at the time, I was actually running the budget for the whole business unit. I turned out I was good with budgets. I have a master's degree in psychology, oddly enough. Turned out I was really good with budgets, wound into this weird hybrid situation. And I said to myself, I'm internally rolling my eyes. And I said, oh, I know how much she makes. I know how much everybody makes. I used to have big student loans. She makes enough to, to eat and put away 6%. And then I thought, you know, when I was 29, because I didn't have a super straight line into the career world, I had nothing in a 401k. Uh, I had big student loans. I wasn't any further along than she was. I had knowledge she didn't have. And I went back to her and I said, you know, Bonnie, if you want, I was where you were. And if you want help, I'll help you. And she said, I want help, which I was really surprised by. Um, And I love, by the way, that you asked her. Yeah. Rather than just assuming. So many people go, there's a life I need to fix. I know what's best for them rather than saying, are you ready for help? Is it, I'm here if you would like. And that's such an important part. It is. And I think I learned that from the aforementioned boss, who I hope never listens to this, um, because she did the opposite. She loved to tell people how to run their lives. And I learned that when I became a manager, the temptation was there. But I was like, you have never liked that. You got to back it off with people who are below you on the power chain. You you, you got to not indulge that. Because some of them might be afraid to say, I, I don't want to hear this or exactly. I'm not ready to hear this. Or I'm not going to take your advice, but I can't tell you to shut the hell up because yeah. you control my salary. Um, so I was actually really surprised she said yes. And we got together and she had some credit card debt. She had big student loans. And we looked at all the numbers And she had no idea that if you paid the minimum on your credit card, it would take you 20 years to get out of a relatively small amount of credit card debt. She was just paying the minimum because that's all they asked her for. Um, And I said, this will take you 20 years and you'll pay three times as much as you've spent on anything. And you have plenty of money to pay more than the minimum. You can be out of this credit card debt in one year, which she did, which was fantastic. And she never got back into it. This was when I was starting in 2014. 
And on top of that, I was showing her she was very nervous to put money in her 401k, which if listeners don't know what that is, that is typically a retirement plan with a corporation. You put the money in. You can't easily take it out until retirement age. And she said, well, I, I don't have any of that money. Because I said, look, you, you have a positive net worth. You're in the black. You have more money, even only putting in the 3% into your 401k, which you've been doing since you were 23. So good job. More money in, in your 401k than you have in student loan debt and credit card combined. So that's fantastic. That's a positive net worth. And she said, yeah, but I can't spend any of that money. So it doesn't count. And I said, well, that's why they don't let you spend it. But also, she she had never heard of dividends, which, again, for people who maybe didn't get stock when they were 12, that is profits from companies you're invested in that they pay back to you. So she was getting dividends in her 401k, as most people are. And she said, well, what is this? And I said, well, it's the company profits that they're paying back to you because you're part owner. And she said, it's free money? And I said, yeah, kind of. How do you not know when dividends are? And that was actually when I recreated my story and went, how do I know what dividends are? How do I, as a psychology master's degree, I didn't take any finance courses in school. Oh, my aunt and uncle got me stock when I was 12. And my dad showed me what dividends were. Not everybody gets that. Um, and so I had to really learn to put the judgy side of me away that's like, how does not everybody know this? Well, no, you, I, I didn't just absorb it from the ether. I was taught. And not everybody gets that. Um, and from there, I developed what one of my clients called accountability without judgment. She's like, accountability without judgment is your superpower. Um, and that's what people really need. So uh, with Bonnie, we put together a budget. I said, look, you can afford to put X amount towards your credit cards every month. And if you do, you will be out in one year. And then all that money will be available for spending. Um, and so she was one example. But that was she was a fairly she wasn't in big trouble. Favorite, my favorite example. I mean, I have I have so many stories I could talk about them forever. But one of my favorites was normally I work with folks, college educated, professional degrees, people that do have the income, but don't have the skills and the mental discipline. I had this woman who came to me. Um, she was from sort of a rough area of Philly, and she was sort of a paraprofessional. Her husband was uh, was a skilled laborer, and when she came to me, whenever I to have a first call with people. I always get the highlights of their, their money. I want to make sure if you're going to pay a professional for this, that you are going to be better off for this. I don't want to make anybody poorer as a result of working with me. She gave me her highlight numbers and I'm like, okay, we can try this. Your budget's going to be tight, but I think we can make it work. They had some low level debt, not a ton. And then when we got really into the numbers on the first call, I realized she had her kids in Catholic school because the schools where they were just weren't going to cut it. The public schools. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to tell you to pull your kids out of out of a better school district. But there isn't much money here to work with. The budget I'm going to give you is so tight for a family of five. I've never seen anybody live on it. And this woman, when she talked to me, was absolutely wooden when she spoke. Like a level of depression that you could hear in her voice. Like it reverberated through the phone. It was like she wasn't even really alive. And I was hoping after the first session that she wouldn't come back and I would just give her her money back. I'm like, she's not going to be able to stick to this budget and I don't think I can help her. And honestly, she's so difficult to talk to because I feel that depression reverberating within me. But the first, between the first and the second session, she came back and she had stuck with it. And then again, between the second and the third. And when she came back for the fourth session, I said, you know, just a normal social, oh, how, how are you today? And she said, 
I'm great. I said, you're great? She's like, I'm great. And I'm like, why are you great? And she said, for the first time in my life, I feel safe with money. And really? I knew, and she said, I, I never knew that was possible. And now I'm telling everyone I know. She was. She sounded like a completely different person. And had she pulled her kids out of Catholic no, school? No, she just made a super tiny budget work. They just cut out everything unnecessary. She kept it because that's the. I always want people to be able to keep their highest priorities, right? Keep what matters the most and creates the most value in your life. Cut around the edges. Cut whatever you can. And it just you know, with three kids, there's a lot of little things. Like she said, we didn't get her hair. My daughter's hair done for school pictures. We just did it at home. Apparently. They're getting their hair done now. That wasn't a thing when I was a kid. Um, she's like, we just, we stay home. We watch movies at home. We don't eat out anymore. We don't do any extras until these credit card debts are paid off. But the amazing part wasn't so much her numbers, although that was amazing. It was, she came back to life in four weeks. That's amazing. It was amazing. And I've heard a lot of people say to me, now that I'm working with you, I'm running more. I got, I've got back into running. Isn't it amazing the momentum of recovery, progress, whatever growth, whatever you want to call it. It's like depression has its negative momentum Uh and um, growth. It's like going to the gym. The more you go to the gym, the more you feel like going to the gym. Exactly. And you can kind of start anywhere. You can start with going to the gym. You can start with... Uh, another type of recovery or getting some other aspect of your life in order, but you can also start with money. Um, and once you start to master, once you've, you know, people feel so out of control with money and they feel so much shame. Yeah. So much shame if they're not doing well. And, and that's what, that's what I was feeling from this woman, just the depression and the hopelessness. And it's, it sounds so stupid and it sounds so boring as soon as she got on a budget. But once she, and Graham was talking about it. You would ask Graham, how do you feel about having every dollar accounted for? And he said, it's so freeing. That, that seems like the the right word for it because then you can let your brain go. Yes. Yes. My goal is to get people to think about money less rather than more. Think about it in targeted ways. Take some pretty simple steps. And then you'll just grow, you'll grow into it in this way where it goes from being a stressor and a shame. Even if you're not thinking about it all the time, it's using up space in the back of your brain. Do you deal with people who are under earning? Yes, to a point. Like I said, um, I start with, I, I do some sliding scale work. So occasionally I'll get somebody, usually it's people with big student loans and their entry level jobs. Um, and I'll say, Hey, you know, I think I can help you. But my cost will be prohibitive for you. Not that I'm even that expensive, but you know, you don't have any extra money to spare. But I know I can help you, so I'll do it for fifty bucks. Um, you know, whatever the case may be, because I think we can make progress. What's really, and I because I had a corporate position, I do kind of sometimes coach people how to ask for raises and and how to you know kind of move up the corporate ladder a little bit. What's really hard is folks that are you know generally in a in a very just different um, socioeconomic status. You know, they, they don't have college degrees and they don't have a lot of earning potential, which is just not my area of expertise. Um, when I do run across those folks, sometimes I refer them out to there are uh, credit um, credit counselors um, there. It's we're working with them has their own pros and cons, but you don't usually have to pay anything up front. Um, so that can be really challenging. But the other thing that people 
who are in that situation are also often dealing with that I just don't have any magic for is life has a lot more pressure. You know, if you're working two or three jobs, the ability to even get on the phone with me regularly can just fall through. Um, so that, that just makes it much, much tougher. Is that what you meant by under-earning? I'm not sure I answered um, the question correctly. A, a bit. I think the other thing that I mean when I talk about under-earning are people who aren't reaching their potential. Um, one of the phrases that Graham used was time debting. Um, you know, for instance, it would be spending hours mm. on a, a video game rather than putting a new resume together. Exactly. To see. So uh, I think we're probably classically the trauma Mm-hmm. lies and yeah. keeping the life small and predictable rather than putting ourselves out there risking rejection risking the fear of responsibility that might yeah. come with success yeah um definitely have talked to some of those folks i will say that's a little more i do have a master's in psychology but i'm not a trained therapist that is a harder that's a harder push right like i will tell people here are maybe some options you have here are some things i've done in the past because I've worked with a lot of different people in a lot of different professions. Here's what I see. That is generally a little bit harder to get people to move on. And while I have had some people that run their own business, most of the people that I work with have kind of steady state income. So if you're wasting a lot of time on video games, you might get fired at some point, but it's not impacting your weekly paycheck. Whereas right. people like Graham, who, you know, their, their income really depends on them hustling, as, as you right. well know. Yeah. Um, that's, and I'm experiencing it for the first time in my life in this new business that I have. I, what I often, how, long, how long have you been doing this? 2015. Okay. Um, and so that made some, for some interesting shifts from corporate job where, frankly, you, you don't want to go into financial coaching to make money. Helping people that don't have a lot of money right. is not the way to get rich. Um, so there were some transitions for me going from pretty much having plenty to, ooh, this is a lot less than we used to have. And I think of myself as good with money, but it's easy to be good with money when you have a lot of it. It's a little different once that goes away. So I had some transitions myself around that. And I do remember saying, you got to put together a budget for your new income. you got to put together. I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't even know how to think about this. And I was like, what? You have a whole system. You do this every day for people. Isn't that it, – it, but yeah, remember, remember where you were, your, yeah. your thought. But I was just going to say, isn't it interesting how um, we can – so clearly see the path Absolutely. in someone else's story, but we've got all the emotional hurdles of yes. our negative self-beliefs yes. or whatever it is. Absolutely. it's. I sometimes tell my clients when you're putting your budget together, treat it as a math problem, not a word problem. Remember in school, there was just the straight subtraction and then there were the trains going from different places. When you think of your budget as a word problem, meaning I can't buy this, I can't have that, how am I going to afford that? You get stuck in that and you won't do all the math. I always say, do the math first. Let's just figure out what the numbers look like, even if they're negative. Once there's something else that Graham said that I thought was really profound was going from vagueness to clarity. Yeah. He said vagueness is the enemy. Yes. And that I think is the number one thing I do for my clients is I drag them kicking and screaming into clarity. Once you have clarity, it kind of sucks at first because now you know what you can't have. But it's, and I think Graham said that as well, because I think you had asked one question, like, is that oppressive or freeing? And he said both. Um, Probably th- initially oppressive, exactly. but ultimately freeing. It is. I, what I tell my clients is you got it. The first month is going to suck. 
you got to embrace the suck because, as you know, there's no growth without discomfort. Kind of like a diet and a, and a, like a cutting diet. sugar out or something else like yes, that. Yes, which I was disappointed to hear that you've done recently because now I feel guilty that I have not told that <laughs> off. <laughs> my uh, my way of relating to my clients because I always have been really good with money, but I am not really good at managing my healthful diet is to always relate it back to food. I can be sitting there saying, I want to lose 10 pounds while eating icing out of a can with a spoon. I have done that. <laughs> Uh, so I understand when people say to me, I want to save more money. And then when we talk, they haven't done anything on the list. Well, let me ask you this. When you're eating the icing out of a can, um, are you going full born, <laughs> making sure you're standing up over the sink like a <laughs> raccoon on its hind yeah, legs? I, you know, I think I was, last time I was over the computer setting up my spreadsheet for calorie counting while just licking it off the spoon. <laughs> Literally yes. writing my uh, webinar for how to keep your New Year's resolutions about money. Um, <laughs> not making that up. It's it's so interesting how we can have such discipline, clarity, and motivation in one area of our lives. And then another area, yeah. it's just – it feels like a bottomless pit of despair. And, you know, to bring it back to – mental 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 health mental illnesses the the one thing that i was you know lucky never to struggle with money and extremely lucky to be raised in a you know mainly loving mainly a primary tone love respect great stuff uh but we were also fed my parents who are both still the same size they were in high school uh fed us two candy bars a day full size candy bars breakfast you know, after lunch and dinner and i kept that up i didn't realize that my parents had done that when they were young and then cut that out once metabolism hit I thought I was going to be guaranteed being, you know, 110 pounds for life because my mom is still a size two. She and uh, they're like, no, no, we didn't keep that up. Like, you're supposed to stop that when you hit like 20 something. I'm like, well, you have really ingrained some uh, some cravings and some habits. I've never yes. said that they would shoot me because they have a lot of self-discipline. But what I have is we'll call it ADHD because that's the closest name for it. Um, not impulsive stuff, but uh, managing time. Time debt, whoa, do I get that? And managing cravings, I can go off sugar entirely. It's one of those abstinence is easier than moderation for me. And I'll go off it for a while and then I go back and I sympathize with you eating ice cream before you went to bed every night. I was feeling camaraderie there, which I guess you don't do anymore since you were talking on the gut I, health. I haven't. About... It's been uh, over over a year wow. since I've, uh, I've done that. Yeah, I was listening to gut health. I'm like, oh, he's gotten better. I really need to work on myself there. Um but where that comes down to is all mental traits have positive and negatives. And my procrastination also includes procrastination on spending. When I have bid on some meds that made my um, ADHD better, it has actually led to more spending at times on things I needed. Um, but part of why I'm good at saving money is I'm bad at spending it. Um, it. It takes time and effort that I don't always put into things. So... What I sometimes tell people is people that are really good at saving, it's not necessarily that they're more disciplined. Like for me, the other thing is I love seeing money accumulate in my savings account. It's like points on a video game for me. Mm -hmm. And it's not for a lot of people. That, that gives them no satisfaction. In fact, my husband once asked me when we were, we were saving, and he's pretty much a saver too. And so we were pretty compatible that way. And at one point he said, well, what is this money that we're saving for? I said, what do you mean what is it for? He's like, well, what's it for? Like, what, what are we planning? Is this, what are we planning on using it for? I'm like, I don't want to use it. He's like, what do you mean you don't want to use it? I'm like, I, I just want it to be there in a pile. 
And he said, do you want to jump around in a pool of gold coins and swim like Scrooge McDuck? <laughs> and I said, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. And obviously that has its own flip side issues that I've had to work on, right? Like that's not the perfect balance. But I say that to tell people one of my big goals, one of the reasons we're so bad with money in society today is money has become very abstract. And I'm just going to geek out from my psychology stuff for a minute. Um, Our limbic system, that's the emotional reward center, cannot learn unless a negative consequence of an action is paired very closely in time to the action. So think about drinking. Your hangover doesn't come till the next day. That's not paired closely enough in time for your limbic system to learn not to drink. So when we spend money on credit cards or even debit cards now, we hand over a card and we get back the thing. And we get back the card. Our limbic system can't tell that there's been a loss there. It literally cannot tell. Our prefrontal cortex, logical part of our brain, yes, it knows. But it's not completely in charge. And so money is so abstract that that um, lack of clarity, that the vagueness that um, Graham talked about, it's just more prevalent than ever. You know, when my parent, when I was a little kid, my parents had to go to the bank by three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday to have money for the weekend. And there weren't even many ATMs back then. When your cash was gone, it was gone. Cash is, your brain learns much more easily from spending cash that we're losing something. There's a trade-off here. You see it leaving your wallet. You see it leaving your wallet. But it's not really practical in today's world. There's places you can't even spend cash. We buy stuff off of Amazon. And so creating basically the video game, it's a spreadsheet, but so where you see the points go up and down in real time rather than waiting a month for your credit card statement to come is a game changer for so many people. Just getting that clarity that Graham talked about, suddenly something flips a switch and I've had people say, oh my God, it's like easier and more fun to live on a budget. Now that I know, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know how to think about it. I would imagine making that budget is less complicated than people fear it will be because just the thought of doing that mm-hmm. makes my stomach tighten. Exactly. And actually for my clients, that's why I do it for them. Different um, AFCs have different sort of, uh, you know, th- philosophies on this. I'm like, it's what, not gonna... what, what's AFC? Oh, sorry. Accredited financial counselor. Okay. Um, we're different than investment advisors. We help the people that don't have the money for investing, who need to learn how to get out of debt, how to manage their money, how to build savings. Gotcha. So there's a lot of different financial professionals. Most of the ones people are familiar with are the inve- the folks that really manage your investments. And I've had clients come to me say, I tried to get help from them and they just didn't want to work with me. I said, right. no, because they, they want you to have a whole lot of assets that they can manage and take a percentage of. That's not what they do. Um, so some people really like, I'm going to try and draw it out of you and coach you and treat this like therapy. I'm like, give me your numbers. I will make your budget. And then we'll test it to see if it works in the real world. But I can make your budget in an hour and you're going to struggle for two days. Once I make it, the light switch goes on and then we work on getting them to own it. But I just want to take that stress off of them. I I know how hard that is. Uh, And they don't really know how to approach it, even though everybody learned the math by fifth grade. But it's it's a psychological barrier that I just want to take away from you. Let me do it. it. It'll be done. And they look at the budget and they say, oh, my God, I love this. I didn't know I could save this much in this amount of time. I didn't know I could get out of my credit card debt this quickly. I'm going to do this. And I have learned that when they come back for the next session, they will not have done it. (laughs) 
And that's when we start to work on the psychology of it. What are your triggers? What are your mental blocks? What are the words you're using when you talk to yourself about money? Let's disentangle them. And then it really starts to flow. So what are the big hits of those? Uh, Okay. So even though I've given you clarity, you try to keep it vague. Um, First thing I tell people to do is stop using your credit card. Even if you're not carrying a balance, there's a lack of clarity there. So use your debit card so it comes out right away. But the big things are, I need, I deserve. Those words, when coupled with spending, are bad, bad words. What I always tell people is, if you see, see something that you want or even feel like you need, say, I could use this or I would enjoy this or I would get some value out of this. Is that more value than I would get out of having a good savings account? Because what we do in our brains, our brains are not good. This is literally like a limitation of all human brains. We can only hold so many ideas in our head at one time. I think the, the actual number is seven plus or minus two. That's the, the variation for, for humans on. That's why phone numbers are seven digits and that's why they're split. Right. Um, we, don't, we don't think of it as being a trade-off. So I say, I don't want to ever hear need because once you say need, you shut down your thinking. Well, I need this. Therefore, I have to buy it consequences be damned. But I also don't want to, I'd also don't want you to say, well, I just want this because we treat our wants as sort of distasteful, shameful. I want this, but if I buy it, then, you know, I, I feel guilty. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to say, I could use this. This would add value in this way. I would enjoy this. Would I enjoy this more than getting my savings where I want it to be? So hold the two ideas at once and choose So nuance. Them. Yes. Nuance and holding more than one idea in your head at one time. But you have to be reminded to do that because it does not come naturally. That makes sense. Uh, a, a word that gets used a lot, um, people will say, I deserve this. Yes. And to me, that's kind of a – it. it it's a weighted word, mm-hmm. and a word that I like to use to replace it is "I'm worthy of, of this," which um, kind of gets rid of any sense of entitlement yes. without degrading. I'm totally stealing that. Yeah. Um, and what I sometimes tell people, my my mother-in-law, at one point, my husband and I keep our cars for a really long time. It's, you know, we, we, we make trade-offs. And at one point, my mother-in-law was like, you should get a new car. You deserve a new car. And I said to my husband, I, I wasn't snarky to her, but I said to my husband, do we not deserve to have that money in the bank? <laughs> and that's what I sometimes say to my clients. You know, I, I love that. I, I'm worthy of this item. I'm also worthy of being credit card free. Yeah. I'm also worthy of having feeling safe with money. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that feeling safe with money and having the shame evaporate and the stress evaporate, you're worthy of that too. Yeah. One of the things for, – for all his flaws, one of the things that my dad modeled for me was uh, living below mm. your means. Yep. The only thing that he ever – and he was an insurance executive. Mm-hmm. Um, so he made you know he made good money. Right. Um, and the only thing that I ever saw him spend money – on himself was like every four years he would buy himself a new car mm-hmm. and that was it. Yep. But the bills were always paid, yep. um, you know, life insurance policies. And when he died, my mom was uh, set for yeah. for life. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very grateful uh, yeah. to, to him for that. Yep. 
Yep. And my dad is a big new car guy too. And he had, when we were, when he was paying for education, they went longer, but now I think he does turn his cars over every four years. But I remember when we were kids, I mean, another thing that I was very lucky about was we had enough, but not too much at about the same amount as everybody around us. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, we used to go to the Jersey shore for vacation. That was our big vacation drive two and a half hours to go to the Jersey shore. I loved it beyond anything. Love the the boardwalk and the rides and the beach. The taffy. The taffy. And we would go for three days. And I would beg, can't we go for a fourth day? Can't we just get four days at the shore? And they said, no, we can't afford it. And I asked my mom years later, I'm like, could we seriously not afford one more day at the Jersey Shore? She's like, no, not back then. And still being able to do all of the other things we set as priorities. Wow, that's amazing discipline. Yeah. That's amazing discipline. Yeah. And and yeah, what a what a great uh conversation to to have with your kid. I yeah. mean, I'm not a parent, so I don't know what's appropriate or not, but that seems it was appropriate, it was, it you know, if they useful. Yeah, if they had uh, you know, opened up the books and said, <laughs> you know, we're fucked if this happens <laughs> and you know, that might have been different. One of the things that my dad did for me when I was uh, graduating high school was he showed me what his budget was. He told me oh. what he made per year. This much goes to taxes, insurance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and, that's fantastic. I and, never got that level. Yeah, and I and I really felt uh like more of an adult because right. he helped me be be privy. Right. To no, that. that's really useful information. Yeah. And we also I was privileged enough to attend a, a really good high school and one of the mandatory classes my senior year was economics and they uh-huh. taught you how to balance a checkbook and t- told you about stocks and bonds and Okay, so you yes. got it there. Did it stick with you? It did. That's great. It did. Yeah. And and I also was fortunate enough to have a savings account when I was a kid. So I remember getting the passbook yep, stamped. Yeah, the little paper ones. Yeah, the little paper ones. And, uh, I think I still have mine somewhere. Yeah. I'm a bit of a money geek. <laughs> and, and, and there was a self-esteem uh, as a child knowing I've got $40 mm-hmm. in the bank. Yep. I could go buy a new baseball mitt if mm-hmm. I wanted to. And there was a sense of, of independence there yes. that uh, I, think was, I think was healthy. Yes, I always had that. In fact, I you know my parents, their rule on allowance is where we give it to you. There are things we pay for. There are things you're expected to pay for. And while they were very generous at Christmas and birthdays, never was there anything purchased for us that was just fun or frivolous in between the designated occasions. You could use your allowance if you had saved it, but and there was never any asking for more. Like this you manage what we what we've given you. Um, and that was super helpful. By the time I was in high school and I got a part-time job, like I took pride in buying some of my own clothes. And I remember when we went, when I went to college and kids today really go nuts with the stuff for the dorms. But back then you needed a trash can and a mirror and, you know, a few other things that you, you weren't going to bed, bath and beyond and getting a Pinterest level dorm room. But I got the basics and I paid for them all myself and they didn't tell me to, I just did because I had money. Now, I will say that parenting isn't destiny. My brother, who's fine now, but um, really liked to spend. And I felt bad for him when he went to college because they made him, he hadn't saved as much as I had. And they said, well, we'll buy you the trash can and the mirror and whatever, but you have to pay us back because Chris bought all those things herself. 
Um, oh, I bet he loved you. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, I did have to pay off big student loans because my parents were able to pay for college. But they said, you know, after that, we're, we are working on our retirement. We'd love for you to go to graduate school if you want to go, but it's not a free ride after uh, undergrad. And I did go, and I took out the big student loans, and those were not fun to pay off. My brother also went, and he was annoyed at me, and he said, you should never have taken that deal. I'm like, what deal? He said, the deal where they paid for, for undergrad but not grad school. I'm like, do you think it was offered to me as a deal? Right. Did you think I it had the boundary. option to turn it down? Right. I don't – and I, I think I actually told my dad that story, and my dad said, yeah – your brother thinks the world owes him a living, and he thinks I'm the world. <laughs> wow. So my dad was very good with boundaries. And yeah. so he said, you know, if we don't want money to be the reason you don't go, if you need, like, maybe a loan from us or some kind of help, we'll help. But just know that it's not – the checkbook's not just open at yeah. this point. What what a great example of uh, compassionate, diplomatic um, – I don't know, boundaries, yes. what, 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 structure. Yes, boundaries and structure, my parents, my dad especially, exceedingly good at. Yeah. So, you know, we, had, we had the discipline and the affection in, in a really great, great measure. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd, uh, you'd like to share? And let's plug your, your business. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me. The name of my company is Mind Over Money because I believe it's about – Way more than just the numbers. Um, and my URL, because Mind Over Money was taken, is mindovermoneysite.com. So mindovermoneysite.com. You can also find me by just Googling Christine Lane AFC. Um, you'll find my accreditation and all that good stuff. So. Uh-huh. And is it C-H-R? C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E. Good Christian girl. Christine spelled like Christ. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm really glad you contacted me. I, oh. I feel like this was a, a fruitful and uh, awesome. help, helpful conversation. And if you have time for one more, we, we do have mm-hmm. our mutual friend, Chris Mancini. He doesn't know I'm doing this. But I think your listeners would love – He's for people that are stressed out and having a hard time to sleep, his podcast, The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood, Game Changer for Falling Asleep. It's a fantastic podcast. for If you're dealing with anxiety, listen to that one. Sweet. Love, Chris. Love, yeah. love Chris. And thank you, Chris. Thank you. Many, many thanks to uh, to Chris. I don't know why I said many, many that way. Maybe because I'm still high from the 4th of July. I actually didn't even hear, listen to fireworks. My girlfriend had to get up early the next day, so she left in the afternoon, and I ate too much leftover pizza, and about 9 o'clock I couldn't keep my eyes open, so <laughs> I took a late evening nap through the uh, through the fireworks. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Sally. And those of you that are new listeners, uh, the way you can fill out surveys, and they're completely anonymous, I don't even get the IP address of the uh, um, person filling out the surveys. I want people to feel free to share whatever they want to get off their chest. And you can do it through the website, uh, mentalpod.com. As I said, From the fears survey filled out by Sally, she writes, I fear losing my husband. I don't fear that he will leave me, but I fear losing him just because I cannot imagine life without him. He brings so much joy and stability in my life. I know I could never be as happy as I am now if I were to lose him too early. I know this isn't healthy, but he is just the one person I don't think I could get over losing, and it brings me a ridiculous amount of anxiety. 
I'm very ashamed of this, but I don't know how to control it. Wow. I think I say this all the time, but I think a lot of people can relate to that. Early in my relationship uh, with my girlfriend, when I really felt like, oh my God, we're connected. I, I feel like I know who she is. I feel like she knows who I am. It feels safe. I'm happy to see her whenever I see her. Um, I immediately went to the place of, oh no, what if she dies? And I try to remind myself, and I'm just going to throw this out there for you, that real love, true love, is not possessive. I don't know if that helps. Feel free to tell me to fuck off. Feel free to cast me to hell. But you know what? I want my ride to hell to be entertaining. So if you could put me on a roller coaster to hell. This is an uh, audio from uh, Joanne, a Patreon subscriber. Um, And this is her awfulsome moment. Hey, all. This is Joanne. I'm a white trans woman who is homeless in Baltimore for a year. I lived on the streets and in rehabs that entire time. Anyway, one day after I had been kicked out of rehab for an incident that had happened while I was heavily dissociated, I walked by a homeless guy begging near 7-Eleven downtown. He asked me if I was a woman for some reason, and I snapped back, Why does that matter? He said, Well, I guess you are. (laughs) Oh, my lord. Thank you for sharing that, Joanne. This is from uh, Izzy, a happy moment. She writes, I love the cozy feeling I get when I get into bed after placing my hot water bottle at the end of it for 30 minutes. What a great one and a great camping tip if you're ever camping and it's uh, and it's cold. Another good camping tip uh, is, and I imagine you got to be really careful with this one, is some people will heat up a brick they'll put it on the fire and then they'll bring it into their tent and obviously you don't want to put it on something that's going to catch fire but that'll radiate heat for uh, for a while and don't sue me if your tent goes up in flames remember i'm a jackass that told dick jokes on basic cable while cooking chicken Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention in the beginning of the podcast that uh, this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, and I am not a therapist. Uh, Izzy also writes, I love the feeling I get when I submerge into a warm bath. It's like going in for a nice, cozy hug with your favorite human. So good. So good. A good support group to me feels like a, a jacuzzi. I just, I, I, you know, like that, that you can finally take a deep breath. It's like you're, you're suddenly aware of your breathing and that taking a deep breath and letting your shoulders go is an option. That's, that's one of the things I love about it. Thank you for that. I'm thanking me, not Izzy. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by a person, is it man or woman? I don't know. Uh, they call themselves, uh, excuse me, Crying Lightning. 
how would you like people to think of you as kind and helpful, someone who made an impact and actually left the world a better place than she found it? Uh, she. For being a hard worker, but not just for the sake of working hard, but because she had a passion and wasn't afraid to chase it. I want to be remembered for someone who actually found balance, someone who was genuinely, genuinely at peace and satisfied with their life, who enjoyed working and not working, who enjoyed being with loved ones and being alone, who loved her family and friends and also loved herself. Wow, that that is, those are some deep and awesome uh, aspirations. How does it feel writing that? It feels quite sad, but also inspiring. I know I'm a pretty long way from that ideal, but I also know that I am getting better. Um, I mean, isn't that most of our paths is just the trying, the seeking? I think like 90% of life is just seeking rather than saying, oh, I'll be able to relax once this thing is accomplished. Kind of like the cliche, it's, you know, the journey, not the, uh, the end zone. Boy, did I fucking butcher that. How would you use a time machine? I'd use it to tell myself to say no more often to my mom. I'd tell myself to ask my mom to stop talking about her issues with my stepfather or stepsisters, to stop asking me for advice or using me as an outlet to rant about them. I would tell myself to walk away if she doesn't stop. I'd tell myself that it's not your problem and it's not your responsibility. You are not being a bad daughter by saying no, that you're her daughter, not her friend, therapist, or husband, that some distance will actually improve your relationship, leaving less resentment. You don't have to like your stepfamily because they take advantage of your mom, but it's also her fault that she can't say no. You can only control your own actions. Oh my God, such wisdom. Uh, I'm supposed to feel satisfied proud, grateful about my childhood, but I don't. I feel deeply empty and I don't understand why. I'm grateful for all my mom gave me. She gave up the job she loved to spend more time with me and my brother and to be able to afford to give us the best. We had a house with a pool, went to the best private school, went to the best camps during the summer, had amazing luxury vacations, got fancy clothes and games for holidays. We didn't have chores, and when we asked for things, it was usually a yes. Mom went to every sports game she could, drove us to school every morning and every activity in the afternoon. I just had to get straight A's and always do my best. I just couldn't do anything that would disappoint. And as I failed at being perfect over and over again, my mom didn't start loving me any less, but my guilt grew. I related to characters on TV shows whose families were visibly chaotic and secretly wished they could be mine. I wanted and still crave an explicit reason why I feel so fucked up. Sure, my mom and I screamed and cried at each other when I had just had it. I recognize now how deeply parentified I was, where there was emotional incest and an overall lack of any boundaries whatsoever, but I still feel that all of this doesn't explain why I have paralyzing perfectionism, moderate social anxiety, major depression, and love addiction slash avoidance. It makes me think that I'm just fucked up and there's no hope of change. As a non-professional, but as someone who relates to what you experienced and the ripples of it that you are experiencing, it is textbook. 
and I highly recommend you read two books. One is uh, Running on Empty by Dr. Janice Webb, and uh, actually three books. The other one is Silently Seduced by our former guest, uh, Kenneth Adams, and um, Janice Webb was also an amazing guest, and uh, a book by Pia Melody called Facing Love Addiction. I think if you read those three books, or even really just one of them, you will begin to have some compassion for yourself because nobody, in my opinion, can come out of an emotionally incestuous childhood and feel safe, not want to be perfect, and to be comfortable with intimacy. I've never seen it. How does it make you feel writing real feelings out? Incredibly sad. Part of me feels like I'm just complaining and being dramatic. You are so not being dramatic. Another part tries to be empathetic. Another part feels guilty that I'm wasting time. Another knows that I need to get it out. One of the ripples of being used by a parent, whether they intended it or not, is that we ignore our own needs. And so giving ourselves compassion is like bench pressing 500 pounds. It feels foreign. It doesn't feel right. It, it, it feels like ill-fitting clothes. And it takes time to begin to feel in our bones that we deserve self-compassion. And it's not to throw somebody under the bus. It's to stop throwing ourselves under the bus. And it took me years to get to that place, years of support group meetings and therapy. It does not happen overnight. And I don't believe it will happen isolating and keeping our things stuffed down. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes and no. I know we all have family drama and those who don't complain that their families are boring or just lie to themselves. I also know that people just deal with it better than I do. I wish I didn't think so much. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yeah, I would really be interested in hearing more from people who are from toxic but, but loving families and how they established boundaries with them without cutting contact. Um, you might listen to the episode we did with Rebecca D, uh, who is uh, setting boundaries with her mom and grew up, uh, you know, being parentified, et cetera, et cetera. And if you need suggestions for support groups, email me through, uh, through the website. These are some loves from Carrie. She writes, I love the smell of a just opened bag of Albanese gummy bears. Uh, I assume that means gummy bears from Albania. Uh, I love sneaking quietly into my son's room after he is fast asleep and kissing him goodnight again. I love afternoon shadows dancing on a wall from a window in my house. And I love bedtime, that moment after a few head nods in my pillow to settle this space where I can finally close my eyes and sigh. Those are awesome. Thank you both. For the surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Cake Eater. And uh, he asks, 
With how fast AI is progressing, it's only a matter of time before virtual therapists become a thing. What are your thoughts on this? Would you share your darkest thoughts with a robot therapist? Would you trust what it said to you? I don't think I could ever trust an AI therapist, nor would I uh, work with one. But I would meet halfway, and I would find a therapist who could do the robot. How's that for a lame joke? How's that? How's how's that working for you on the treadmill? Listening to the podcast. If I if I ruined treadmills for you, wouldn't be surprised if I did. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Dream Girl Evil. She identifies as queer. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She's not sure if she has been uh, physically or emotionally abused. She writes, I've had moments of my parents yelling and screaming at me. We've since talked about those moments. I've forgiven them, but I cannot forget. I still deep, I'm still deeply afraid of upsetting my parents. But that fear no longer stops me. It's only a constant voice in my head. Any positive experiences with abusers? I'm very close with my parents, especially my mom. I like being close with them. It gives me a sense of strength and security, a power that I can use to get me through difficult conversations with them. Darkest thoughts. My darkest thoughts are my darkest secrets. I can't remember when they exactly began, but... For four years or so, I've had sexual dreams about my family. Maybe it started around when I started taking an SSRI. I've heard that those fuck up your dreams. It started with dreaming that I was forcing myself on my younger brother, including violently raping him. I love my brother more than anything in the world. We're really close, like best friends. People have always commented that we seem like the best siblings ever, but we used to fight a lot. He would purposely purposely annoy me like any little brother does, but I would react violently. I screamed at him and slapped and hit him often. I would also hit him randomly as a joke that only I thought was funny. I've made him cry so many times. My brother still winces when I pass him, nervous that I'll hit him. But at the end of the day, we would still cuddle up together while watching TV. I usually don't remember my dreams, but I always remember these ones. Sometimes I recognize in my dream that what I'm doing is wrong because it's incest. Other times, it's just like another sex dream. I'm just happen, I just happen to be having sex with my brother, my mom, or my dad. No matter what I realize while dreaming, I always wake up feeling disgusting and horrified with myself. I feel the bile in my throat as my stomach churns below. It's almost immobilizing. While typing them, my fingers feel like they've been encased in plaster. I would never, never hurt my brother like this, and I want to say that I would never touch him like this, but that's not true. Around the time when the dream started, I can't remember exactly, I also made a commitment to myself to hit him less. But as I tried to be more kind, I started to touch him more inappropriately. I started to pat his ass or poke his nipple as a joke instead of hitting him like I did before. I know he doesn't like it, but I still catch myself doing it anyway. 
I started acting this way by watching other men interact and seeing how teammates physically touched each other. I wanted that physical connection with my brother. I want to be close with him. I want to hug him and know that everything is going to be all right. But these dreams terrorizing terrorize me, reminding me of all the boundaries I don't seem to have with my brother and other members of my family, frankly, and all the fucked up things I could do. I hate that I have these dreams and there's nothing I can do to control them because they are only dreams. Well, let's look at the positive, which is that you're aware of it and you recognize that boundaries uh, is is are what is important in this. And I am hopeful that you can not only work towards um, recognizing and honoring boundaries, but that you will that you will get there. And it might take help. It might take a support group or therapy or a, a, a trusted friend. But the thing that I'm hopeful in reading your survey is you want to change. The worst thing is somebody that doesn't own their shit and is unwilling to change. And you are clearly not in that category. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Thankfully, my family does not turn me on when I'm awake. Now that's a t-shirt. I really like being a brat in the BDSM sense. I like being naughty, mischievous, like pretending to struggle out of bondage, ignoring orders, teasing my dominant. Then I like being ultimately, quote, forced, unquote, to give in to pleasure and do what the dom wants. I'm not that embarrassed by my sexual fantasies. I know that they probably represent an escape from my perfectionism. BDSM is also so freeing for me because it's the ultimate trust. I can trust someone to make the right decisions for me, but I want to rebel because I don't like the idea of being completely passive. My sexual fantasies also reassure me that I'm not who I am in my dreams. In my sex dreams, I'm always really dominant with my family. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Thanks to my lack of boundaries and blunt personality, I've told everything to everyone I wanted to for better and worse. I really do have few secrets and only one important one. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want my mom to divorce her husband. It would allow, allow her to chase her dreams after sacrificing her wants for so long. She could live without his emotional abuse and alcoholism, and I could live without the constant knowledge that my mom is with this dickhead and I can do nothing about it. And the family dog could finally come live with me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Writing this out has been exhausting. I forced myself to do this because I've been feeling depressed lately and increasingly bothered by these dreams. Writing this out has convinced me that it's a bigger problem than I thought. I have to stop touching my brother as a joke. It's the only thing I can do. I still don't know if I need to see a sex therapist. I feel pathetic since I'm only 21, but these thoughts are fucked up. I can't tolerate it anymore. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? The only thing that brings me the slightest bit of comfort is that they are only dreams. I can't control my dreams. I feel relieved that I wake up feeling repulsed. That feeling tells me that I am different from my dream self. Thank you so much for, for going deep and, uh, and sharing that with us. Um, 
again, I, I am hopeful. If you just keep seeking, I really believe that um, you can feel more peaceful. These are some loves filled out by Carrie. And uh, they write, I love the rare occasion of driving long distances alone, knowing I will soon be in my car with at least an hour drive on an open freeway, sunroof open, listening to my favorite music and singing my heart out. I love the moment my 70-pound dog leaps onto my husband's side of the bed the second he gets up at 4 a.m. for work. I love finding new growth buds on all my garden plants as winter begins to move to spring. And I love the first time I put on those super plushy, soft house socks from the dollar store. Oh, and one more, and I love that one. Uh, laughing until I cry. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, tag team this. I love crying until I laugh. So weird how those are connected, how laughing and crying are, are so deeply connected. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself broken old. She writes, I was talking to my mom the other day and she said, your kids are so smart and they're doing so well in life. That must be so wonderful. I wonder what it's like. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by just a girl. And uh, she writes, I love winter mornings when I have nowhere to be and I can sit by the fireplace in my pajamas enjoying a book and a cup of coffee. Oh, man. That sounds good. Thank you for that. This is... Is this our last one? Yes, this is our last one. This is uh, from the Back in Time survey filled out by Sarah. Uh, share a moment in your life when you wish you could go back and say something to yourself. I wish I could go, I could go back in time and tell my early 20s self that there's nothing wrong with her. I would sit down next to her as she's at a party in full panic attack and tell her, you're not the only one who experiences this. Many people suffer as you do and you are not alone in this. I would tell her that she doesn't have to be at that party if she doesn't want to. You don't have to drink alcohol and do drugs to be accepted and loved. You don't have to be a different person to be accepted and loved. How you are feeling in this moment right now as your nervous system is spiraling out of control, your vision is blurred, you're so dizzy you can barely walk, and your few and and your fear of anyone noticing is holding your mind and body captive. And then this is in caps. No, you are still no as in K-N-O-W. You are still worthy of love. There is nothing wrong with you, and this is not your fault. I would grab her shaky, clammy hands and lead her out of the party. I would give her water and then tuck her into bed. I would say, your feelings mean the world to me, and the only thing I care about right now is you. You don't have to talk to me, entertain me, or ask me how I am. All I want is for you to lay down, breathe, and know I'll be right here next to you if you need anything at all. Wow, that is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. And then a moment from her day that she wants to share. Since I've been in recovery from drugs and alcohol, 116 days and counting, 
High five to you. It delights me that I have many positive moments to choose from. The one that stands out the most is the day that I went to an AA barbecue. I've been attending meetings and was sober for about two months. I was also stuck in a deep, deep depression. My life had changed so drastically, and it was, in parentheses, and still is, so hard to connect with others soberly. I enjoyed the AA meetings up to that point, but I never made an effort to get to know anyone there. I had sank into the despair of loneliness and didn't have my numbing agents to blur it away. I decided to go to the barbecue despite all the reasons I had given myself not to. I walked into the room and instantly people started to introduce themselves, giving me a hug and telling me they were happy I was there. I appreciated their friendliness but still kept to myself. I went outside and smoked a cigarette and found someone I recognized from my home meetings. We started talking and as we shared our stories together, we were both amazed at how parallel they were. I found myself so full of energy and just couldn't get enough of our conversation. She understood every word that came out of my mouth, and by the end of it, we were in tears, crying and holding each other. It was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. We both agreed that this was a start to an awesome friendship. Since then, I've been trying to make more of an effort to connect with other sober people. I can now understand how immediately, immensely, I'm sorry, important it is to find your tribe of people where you can feel safe, heard, and truly cared for. Do I need to tell you how much I love that? Because if you're going to push me, I will. But I'm going to do it resentfully like Gracie here in fireworks. And you don't want to see that. Next thing you know, you're putting your socks on and I'm on the bed on my back waiting for the belly rub. And that's going to be awkward. So let's just, let's wrap this thing up. Everybody go their separate ways. Has this gotten awkward? I hope it has. That's that's how I celebrate my nation's independence. Is reminding people how awkward it was when we told the British we didn't want to be under their rule anymore. People thought it was violent and angry. No. Remember, these are British people talking to British people. They are uncomfortable talking about their emotions. So they made it about tea. Could that be any more British? I don't think so. My God, this has gotten off track. (laughs) Let's wrap it up. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never. Did you hear my stomach? Ever. Forget that you are not alone. And thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.